Sega's roots can be traced all the way back to a pinball distributor that existed way back in the 1930s. Irving Bromberg would inspire his son to start a company that would spread from the eastern coast of the U.S. to the west coast before continuing to spread across the Pacific, to Hawaii, to Japan. Here, a company that originally sold coin-op machines and jukeboxes to American military bases would become the Sega that we know and love today. And then Sega would evolve with the times as mechanical games became video game arcade cabinets, and as that industry failed, they turned to the next big thing home video game consoles. Today we're going to look at the convoluted and twisty history of Sega en route to the creation of their first home console, the SG-1000. So stick around and join us as we spin you a tale on yet another trip down memory card lane. Good afternoon and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 150th episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we'll tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, a console, a person, just something relevant to this week in gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. And today, we've got quite the story for you to celebrate our 150th episode, because we're going to learn all about the history of Sega leading up to its very first home console, the SG-1000. I'm David Kasson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who has recently formed his own little enterprise. He's my brother, Rob Kasson. So Rob, Tell everyone what your new endeavor is. Well, Dave, it's to get money. It's perfect. I've never heard a better business idea in my entire life. I know, right? It's it's going to be pretty successful. Yeah, you got it. You nailed it. Nailed it. Nay, I mean, that couldn't be more succinct if you tried. Not could not, Dave. You know how I do. I do. You do it big? I guess. Yeah, let's go with that. Mm-hmm. What you been playing? Well, Dave, this week has been some Rocket League, some RuneScape, and I think that's about it. Rocket League, RuneScape, and that's it. Yeah, it has not been a heavy gaming week for me. I've uh, been doing a lot of traveling and just getting out, so I haven't had much time to play, so that's it for me. What about yourself? I played the demo of a game called motorworks which is like an open world racing game where you can have any job like bus driver tow truck driver police car driver race car driver taxi cab like if there's a vehicle and it's associated with a job you can do it uh cargo hauler which brings money into the city and it's not a big graphical thing but it's a lot of fun because there's just a lot of flexibility in it um i also pretty interesting it's something you would probably like. I, I mean, it's not realistic graphics, but it's it's good. I also bought um, Tiny Tina's Wonderland and played like 10 minutes of it and had to put it down. I haven't gotten back to it yet. That bad, huh? Ah, no, ah, no. Ah, ha, ha, I know. Ha, ha. 
Yeah, no, I've been looking forward to that for a while. I just, I, time, time, man, time. It's precious. Indeed it is. And I think that's it. I don't think I got around. I I think I played some Power Wash Simulator just because I needed something to fill in like 15 minutes that I didn't have to think about. And I don't think I got back to any. Oh, I played some Arcade Paradise. That's the other thing I played, Arcade Paradise. But that's everything. Yep. So, Sega. Never heard of them. Nope. So today will be an interesting episode where we get to learn about this unknown company. Well, I I do joke, Dave. I have heard of Sega. I played the Dreamcast quite a bit growing up. Not that oh, we had one, but I had a friend you? who had one. Yeah. Well, you have it on me because I... Okay, that's not true. So our neighbor across the street had a Sega Genesis. You know, we were Nintendo people in the household. And my best friend, my childhood best friend, had a Sega Genesis, Sega CD, Sega 32X... And I think that's it. I miss the Dreamcast era. I own a Dreamcast, but I got it as an adult. So I have played Dreamcast. Yes. Yes. Well, then you definitely have me beat, Dave. I don't know why you would think otherwise. Yes. But this story goes way back. Way, way, way back. You're going to... Well, you're... how far back are we talking here, Dave? What, what do you... Where... Let me ask you this before I even start. Where do you think Sega comes from? Like you, you, we've heard origins for a lot of other companies, Nintendo and Taito and Konami. And I mean, we've done a ton of them. So based on what you know from Sega, where do you think Sega comes from? Well, I'm going to guess that it came from some shoemakers. (laughs) You've had maybe a chance to read my notes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Wait, are you you're lying to me? No, it doesn't come from shoemakers. <laughs> oh, I was about to say. Whew. Oh man. Um all right, fantastic. Well, in 1899, Irvin Bromberg was born to Russian Jewish immigrants. He had a humble beginning. He started out as a glass salesman. And he later became president of the Greenpoint Motor Car Corp in Brooklyn from 1923 to 1930. However, his entrepreneurial spirit, he's a kindred spirit of yours, it led him to establish the Irving Bromberg Company, a vending machine distributor, period. He left the, he left the car company and he started a vending machine distributor whose model was we earn money, coincidentally. So just like you. Hey. I know, right? There you go. And I'm hoping to hear good things about this guy. His path eventually crossed with a man named Leo Berman. Leo Berman was looking to sell a pen game, which was one of the early like mechanical games. This was a bingo version nationwide. So Berman approached Bromberg, Uh, You know, he was a vending machine distributor and basically Bromberg didn't have a storefront at the time, but he was interested in helping him sell this this pin game. Right. So to showcase the game, they went to another friend of theirs, a man by the name of Jaime Budin. He was a vending machine item seller who sold things out of a storefront and they granted him permission to display bingo, the pin game in his in Budin storefront. 
And this took off. Brown big, Brown big stuff was in the storefront, and he caught the attention of a man named Bill Shork. Bill Shork was a prominent penny arcade mogul from the early 1900s. And <clears throat> Shork endorsed the bingo pin game, and this made it very popular. Shork was the man. Shork and Bert endorsed it. Suddenly everyone wanted it. So in 1932, Bromberg then became a distributor for Bally Pins, which catapulted his success and allowed him to establish offices in a lot of major cities, New York, Boston, Washington, D.C. He was all over the place. Eventually, he relocated to L.A. in March of 1933. He was the first Bally. Of course, we know Bally is a pinball company now. It was essentially the early version of that. He was the first Bally distributor on the West Coast. He eventually sold all those other early offices. The New York one went, the Brooklyn one went, Boston, Washington, D.C., because L.A. ended up being an incredibly profitable market. He wanted to maintain ties with New York, though, so he became friends with Harry Williams. Harry Williams developed a game called Contact, a groundbreaking pin game. Do these names mean anything to you, Bally, Williams, anything? I mean, Bally definitely sounds familiar, but well, Bally Williams is like your biggest pinball company. They eventually, they eventually became a, a yeah. So, so basically, Bromberg was involved in the early. I mean, pinballs were some of the earliest arcade games when arcade games were penny games when they were mechanical. When that industry was being developed before it was an arcade video game like we know it, this was the thing, and these were the people that were making it happen. And Bromberg was right in the middle of it. He played a really critical role in distributing Bally's games, which really made it popular. He helped it happen. So he continued to lead his Bromberg company in L.A. He eventually sold it to another distributor in 1946. There was a reason for this. He was motivated by a partnership he had with his son, Marty. And Marty was creating a new venture. Now, Marty was born in 1919. He had dabbled in coin-op machines his whole life. Makes sense. His dad was a big coin-op guy, right? Right. After graduating high school, he joined the family business. In 1940, Marty, Marty changed his last name to Bromley. He expanded the company's reach by forming a partnership called Standard Games in Honolulu, Hawaii. Now, alongside his dad and some of his dad's friends... They operated slot machines and other coin-operated equipment on American military bases. When World War II broke out, Marty was inducted into the Navy, but he managed to continue running the standard games operations by working out of the Pearl Harbor shipyard and being placed subsequently on the inactive duty list. After the war concluded in 1945, Bromley and Bromberg, so father and son, sold off standard games. However, they joined forces with another person to establish another company in Honolulu called Service Games. And this was a company dedicated to continuing their coin-op business. In 1951, Service Games faced a significant threat to its business due to the Johnson Act. Now, the Johnson Act, we've never really covered this stuff this far back, the Johnson Act restricted the sale and operation of coin-operated gambling devices on military bases in the United States. So suddenly, they couldn't 
put their coin op machines on these bases, which was the whole business. That was their whole business plan. No more way to make money, you know? I mean, were they considered to be gambling devices? They were. Though? Yes. Yes, they, they were. They had uh, they had other coin op coin op machines, too. But back back in the day, yes. So suddenly they because among coin op machines was the pin machines. They also had slot machines, for instance. OK, does that help make a little more sense? No. Yeah. When you put it that way, it definitely makes more sense. OK, so suddenly they had this surplus of worth, worthless machines. So they devised a solution to that. They dispatched a company salesman and a mechanic to Japan. Their mission, these two, was to establish a company that would purchase the equipment from service games and operate it on military bases in Japan, which was not subject to the ban. So in May of 1952, a company called the Marin Stewart, those are the last names of the guys they sent, was formed for this purchase purpose. The venture proved successful, and it led to the formation of a new company, Service Games, in September of 1953, but not as an American company, but this time as a Panamanian corporation. Eh, working around, huh? They get sneaky when they want to do it. They do. They do. That was a weird way to put it. Same can be said for me. <laughs> All right, never mind. Irving Brownberg <laughs> became the president of Service Games, and a man named Dick Stewart, classic name, served as a general manager. And their primary objective was to purchase coin app equipment from their Chicago firms and ship it to their partnership, which was inevitably named Japan Service Games. Now, this allowed them to operate machines not only in Japan, but also in Korea, the Philippines, and Guam, within the officer clubs and open mess halls of U.S. military bases. The original service games in Hawaii did remain operational with what little stuff they could do, but they eventually ended up selling it in about 1961. In 1953, there was another company called the Cosdell Amusement Machine Company. It basically was founded by a former U.S. Navy pilot, and it became a distributor of coin-operated amusements, so the, the coin-op machines, and Wurlitzer jukeboxes on military bases in Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. But eventually they shifted their focus to the record business because as companies like, companies like Service Games were bringing in all this coin-operated equipment in Asia, they, there was more competition in one place and less competition in the other, basically. Um, and that was also thanks to the efforts of a Rus Russian businessman named Mike Krogan. So Michael Krogan was born in January of 1920 into a Jewish family in Odessa, Ukraine. Due to the Russian Civil War, ironic, 100 years later, we're back in this bullshit. Yeah, that is a bit ironic. Due to the Russian Civil War, his family fled to Manchuria, where they faced anti-Semitism from Japanese soldiers after Japan occupied the region in 1931. However, there was a small group of Japanese military leaders that were influenced by anti-Semitic conspiracy literature. They saw an opportunity in utilizing the skills of all these Jewish refugees in Manchuria to affect Japan's development. So this plan was known as the Fugu Plan, and it didn't really fully materialize, but as a result... Kogan got to go study economics at Waseda University in 1939. 
As World War II broke out, he found himself stranded in Japan. But in 1944, as the war was, you know, it wasn't really coming to an end, but somewhere towards the end of it, he was able to reunite with his father in Shanghai. And they established a trading company called Taitung, which specialized in floor coverings, hog bristles, and natural hair wigs. Eh? Eh? That's eh? Uh, quite the business venture. So Kogan later moved to Tianjin in 1946 and then Tokyo in 1950 after the communist takeover in China. He had to end up, he had to liquidate his business as a result, but was able to start a new trading company called Taito Yoko in 1950. When his venture failed, he founded the Taito Trading Company in 1953. Recognize that name at all? No. It's a video game company. This is when Kogan, Krogan, Kogan, Krogan, Kogan, Kogan, Michael Kogan basically entered the coin-op industry. He was importing and distributing really popular what are called peanut vending machines. Pretty much speaks for itself. And less successful perfume vending machines. In case you didn't know that existed. In 1954, he led Taito into the jukebox business. They couldn't uh, obtain a license to import machines from the United States, so he devised a workaround. They basically started purchasing broken-down used machines and salvaged parts from the military bases. And they used said parts to build working, working jukebox units. But doing it this way, it wasn't really profitable. Uh, it wasn't very profitable. But, but it worked. It got them an in, got them where they needed to go. And as they were rebuilding the machines, they were incorporating traditional Japanese records alongside popular American music. So sales began to rise of jukeboxes and, you know, the money people were putting in. By 1960, there were 1,500 jukeboxes in Japan. Uh, Taito ended up developing the first entirely Japanese-made jukebox in 1956. But, um, like I said, it was, it ended up being more cost effective for them to keep doing it the way they were doing it, where they purchased the broken down machines and imported things. As the Japanese economy approved towards the end of the 1950s, they became the official Japanese distributor of AMI jukeboxes, and that ended their reliance on refurbished machines. So you're probably wondering why Taito, why now we're talking about a jukebox, why we're talking about a Jewish man named Kogan, Michael Kogan, right? A little bit, Dave. Well, I hate to break it to you, but before we continue to dive into today's exciting topic, I want to take a moment and share an incredible tool that has revolutionized our podcasting experience, Zencaster. And if you're a fellow podcaster or thinking about starting your own show, Zencaster is a must-have tool in your arsenal. It has completely transformed the way we record our episodes, and we can't imagine looking back. Absolutely. With Zencaster, you could say goodbye to those frustrating technical issues and poor audio quality. It's a seamless platform that ensures crystal clear recordings every single time. And the best part? Zencaster works entirely in your web browser, so you don't need to download any complicated software. It's user-friendly and incredibly convenient even for those new to podcasting. That's what I love about Zencaster. 
It's designed with podcasters in mind, providing all the essential features you need to create professional quality episodes. You can record remote interviews, or you can co-host shows with amazing ease. And let's not forget the automatic post-production feature. Zencaster makes editing a breeze by automatically creating separate tracks for each participant. It saves us so much time and effort. Plus, Zencaster offers automatic backups to the cloud, ensuring your recordings are safe and secure. You'll never have to worry about losing your valuable content. It's true. Zencaster has truly simplified our podcasting workflow, allowing us to focus on delivering top-notch content to our listeners. So fellow podcasters, are people thinking about getting into podcasting? Take our word for it and give Zencaster a try. Elevate your podcasting game with this incredible tool and experience the Zencaster difference firsthand. Visit Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use our offer code MemoryCardLane to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster package and discover why podcasters worldwide trust Zencaster for the recording needs. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com forward slash pricing and use our offer code it's our website. You know it. You love it. Memory card lane. One word. Don't miss out on this game changing solution. And now speaking of game changing solutions, during the same period, there was an American named David Rosen who was laying the groundwork to start a coin operated company in Japan himself. Rosen was a Korean War veteran. He had been stationed across Asia and he was watching Japan's economic growth and he wanted to be a part of it. So in 1951, he established the Rosen Enter he established Rosen Enterprises, which was initially focused on arranging uh, portraits from photos that were sent from the United States to Japan. Now this business wasn't very successful. So he transformed his company into a trading firm that exported artworks and manufactured small items for the domestic market. He eventually identified a thriving trade of photographs for ID cards in Japan. So in 1954, he imported photo math booths, so photo booths uh, from the U.S., which offered cheaper and faster film development. To address the issue of fading photos from the booths, he modified it, allowing users to develop the film themselves and monitor the temperature, which resulted in longer-lasting pictures that were suitable for official IDs. The Photorama booths became a massive hit. They had long queues at over 100 locations across Japan. To counter protests by traditional photo studios, Rosen established a franchise system. He licensed the technology and he supplied the film to franchisees. However, people get out and people got in on this. They got wise to this. They started to counter this and other businesses infringed upon it, started to impact profits. So he continued the Photorama business until roughly the early 1960s when he began searching for new avenues of expansion. What he decided to do was enter the coin op industry. He regulated he he basically negotiated for an import license for lu- for luxury goods and he acquired older games from US distributors at affordable pricings. They were like gun games like Seaberg's Coin Hunt, Shoot the Bear, 
He basically leveraged his Photorama connections with movie theater chains to place what are called gun corners in the establishment, these mechanical gun shooting games. And this was very successful, which allowed him to secure additional licenses for other equipment. And this set the stage for him to really like blow into the coin op industry. Now, remember, we have been talking about like the other guys that were in on it, the the Blombergs, the Taito, all these other stuff. Um, Taito was the leader, actually, in the coin op industry. They managed to do so because they opened Japan's first large scale game center in Osaka. This game center had over 40 shooting games and pinball tables, and that basically made Taito the market leader going into the 1960s, early 1960s. Um, also, by this point, they were the Japanese distributor for Gottlieb Pinball Machines, which was a, which which is an incredibly well-known pinball machine company. So a whole lot here in, in the coin app. But Rosen was looking for even more avenues to expand his business. He attempted to introduce an indoor computer golf game, but it failed because golf was really only seen as an outdoor activity in Japan. He tried to start a slot car business. However, that was short-lived. Um, and then he founded a bowling alley, which was pretty successful. You know, bowling had gained popularity in the United States and had made its way over uh, to American military bases in Japan in the late 40s, early 50s. Um, it really only had a single location in Tokyo that catered to American servicemen. So Rosen opened up a bowling alley in one of the most bustling entertainment areas in Tokyo, which pretty much guaranteed high foot traffic. He secured the space, opened up 14 lanes, you know, secured this by kind of uh, kind of opening a relationship with a local movie movie um, movie theater and it blew up. He basically set new business records as the Japanese were basically introduced to bowling and they loved it. His bowling alley began to thrive and the two largest U.S. bowling companies, AMF and Brunswick, took notice. So they firmed they formed partnerships with Japanese bowling firms in 1961. So they captured a significant portion of the domestic bowling market. And this pretty much left them and Rosen as like as it but they took over so rosen's enterprise became a really minor component you know it, it it just wasn't the thing anymore but bowling alleys at this point were prime locations of arcade games and he was an arcade guy so he was able to basically start pushing corn ops and all of these in all of these bowling alleys and, and it just blew it just it it blew up it, it absolutely blew up so as this happened in the mid-1960s, arcade games became incredibly popular. Uh, Taito was still the market leader. They established a subsidiary called Pacific Amusements Limited in 1963. Basically, they had a bunch of innovations. There was a, a pachinko machine, actually, Pachasuro machine. It was a slot machine variation based on pachinko. Eh? 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 Uh, yeah, I haven't heard of that. Yeah, I know. They also introduced the first crane machine to Japan, which was called the Crown 602 in 1965. That was an instant hit. Uh, crane machines are insanely popular uh, to till today. Um, it, it was just a thing. So Taito 
and Rosen are concentrating on the Japanese market. Bromley and Bromberg have service games. They want to transform their service games company into an international coin-op empire. So, you you know, if you'll recall, they have been importing amusement equipment from their Panama-based service games company to a company they formed called Service Games of Japan. Now, their plan was to reverse the process by introducing all this Japanese-made equipment to the rest of the world. To facilitate this expansion, they formed a new subsidiary called Club Specialty Overseas, which was established in Panama in 1956. And it was basically a financial clearinghouse between service games manufacturing and distribution operations. And then they also formed Service Games Nevada in 1957 to move everything into the U.S. market. And that basically, it was a final assembly point for slot machines. Because they were assembled there, that was a loophole that allowed them to bypass a law requiring government purchase machines to be American-made. They were assembled in America. They were American-made. Wink, wink. Hmm. That's actually still a thing today. With There's two different uh, Buy American Acts that one is allows assembly. The other one requires majority of components created in. So... Nice. Yeah, still applies today. So basically, Service Games was expanding. They began to retool themselves. They they bought a tooling set, began manufacturing replacement parts for, for the Japanese machines, began assembling these Japanese machines. The machines were distributed to various locations, uh, you know, including Service Game Japan, Service Games Korea. There was a Bromley distributor. Uh, in West Germany, and at this point, they began using a brand name. Instead of Service Games, they became Sega. So there you go. Oh. That's a S-E-G-A. long... S-E-G-A. S-E-G-A, Service Games. Yeah, okay, that's all coming together now. So what did they do after that, Dave? Now they're, they're Sega, so, I mean, how does this all relate to video games? Because so far... We're talking coin up. So basically they got there as they expanded their arcade operations. They got the, the governments came down to them, the U S and Japanese governments. They were starting to be accused of various illegal activities like smuggling, fried bribery, tax evasion, coercion, intimidation. They were never convicted of anything, but there were definitely consequences to them being, being accused in 59, the Navy banned service games from all its bases in Japan, followed by a complete ban in the Philippines the following year. In 1961, the U.S. Civil Administration of Okinawa fined service games for smuggling, fraud, battery, and tax evasion. And then in 1963, the Air Force implemented a service uh, a ban on service games from all its bases worldwide. Wow. They got hit pretty hard. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So basically, they had all these investigations that were tarnishing the service game's name, and so a reorganization was was needed. Service Games Japan was terminated. Two new companies were formed in this place, Nihon Garaku Busan KK and Nihon Kukai Saizo KK. Um, one was known as Automatic, the other was known as Sega Inc., uh, Nihon Goku Garaku Basan was hand led by Dick Stewart, who was one of the early guys uh, in there. Um, and Stewart and Lemire 
One was one was uh, the automatic guy. One was the second guy. These guys are still back into it. Um, Service Games Korea became established at Garlan. They eventually dissolved themselves and were replaced by a company called CSOI. Basically, they they were having to get ahead of all the ahead of all the um, ahead of all the governments by like dissolving their companies and reforming them as different names including what what originally was Sega. In 1964, David Rosen noticed that his position in the Japanese arcade industry was slipping, so he proposed a merger with Nihon Goraku Busan to create a, basically what he considered to be the leading company in this really competitive, aggressively competitive Japanese coin-op industry, right? So on July 1st, 1965, Nihon Garaku Busan acquired Rosen Enterprises and they changed their name legally to Sega Enterprises Limited. David Rosen was established as the CEO and managing director. Dick Stewart became the president and Ray Lemaire took the title of director of, Plan- of production and planning. Now, if you don't remember, Stewart and Lemaire were the guys sent to Hawaii in the very beginning of the story to try to, you know, figure out what, what to do. Um, under Rosen's leadership, Sega Enterprises Limited uh, phased out slot machine production and equipment sale to military bases and focused on becoming the top coin-operated amusement company in Japan. Uh, their goal was to eventually become a public company. He established Sega, shifted its shifted its ideas as an old company from importing used games to bringing the latest products to Japan. Uh, He was really frustrated with the stagnation of the Chicago market Um, and inspired by Taito's success. He, you know, because they had decided to make their own games and jukeboxes and all that. He also decided to manufacture his own products. Um, He basically service games had a jukebox and slot machine factory. And so he used that to for, to manufacture. Um, he made a deal with Williams, basically, to manufacture jukeboxes and get into that into that which call it the music jukebox, basically. Enter Masaya Nakamura. He was born in Tokyo in 1925. He was the son of a shotgun manufacturer whose business was destroyed during World War II. And then the eldest Nakamura opened a gun repair shop in Matsuya where the first Japanese game center had once been on its rooftop as restrictions on gun ownership loomed after the war, Nakamura modified guns into children's pop guns. And so the family's focus shifted to the toy business. And as this happened, they expanded into other forms of children's entertainment. Basically rooftop amusement spaces were making a comeback in Japan in the fifties. They would put like, horse rides like those little children's um carousels thank you yes carousels and those horse riding like the penny horses and stuff like that um so they were putting them on on rooftop amusement spaces and basically they innovated they made a 3d sound and picture viewing machine there was this amusement machine they made called the roadway ride uh and and basically Everyone wanted these machines. They were really popular and they were going on all these rooftop amusement parks. By 1966, they, Nakamura, they had become one of the Japanese top operators of, of these type of, of rides, 
not games but rides. But there wasn't a lot of space for them after a while because companies like Taito and Sega started to like get into department stores, like their play areas with their arcade games. And so basically basically they infringed on all this all this space, right? Right. And so for starters, really interesting. He obtained a license from Walt Disney to use his characters in the projects, and they started making Walt Disney kitty rides. But then he realized he could make money with these more elaborate coin-op amusements, starting with a game called Periscope. Now, Periscope is a very well-known na- game. It's a target-shooting game. It introduced a revolutionary... You know, like it, it, w- it revolutionized this mechanical games. It was a large cabinet with a plexiglass ocean. It had plastic ships on a motorized carriage. There were impressive electronic sound effects. Up to three players could look through Periscopes to target and destroy the ships uh, that were basically represented by points of light moving across these like simulated waters. Um, Periscope struggled at first because it wasn't like most of your games were like penny, five cents. I think this was the first quarter game ever made. It was expensive, and so it struggled. But as people started to play it, it gained a lot of attention. Now, Dave Rosen noticed that it was getting a lot of attention from distributors in the United States and Japan, so he decided to manufacture a version for foreign markets. He realized that the game's size and cost made it really not cost-effective to export it after they took it to conventions. So he had them create a single-player unit. And basically, they exported it. They started uh, putting it out there This uh, for a quarter per play. Yes, this was a quarter play. And it was released internationally in March of 1968 by Sega. And it basically revolutionized the coin-op industry and set the standard for quarter play in arcade titles. If you're ever curious where that comes from, Periscope is the game that established that. Gotcha. As Periscope became popular and the jukebox business increased, Rosen's dream of making Sega a publicly traded company was, it was totally possible. Absolutely possible. And in basically January of 1970 is when they wrapped up everything. Sega stock was purchased by a company called Goff and Western for a total price of almost $10 million. Wow. Rosen became the chairman and CEO of the newly created Sega Corporation and basically moved into a new phase. As part of the sale agreement, Rosen was supposed to re- was required to remain as the CEO of Sega until 1972. Um, all the other guys, Bromley, the other owners like Stewart and all them, um, not Stewart, but Lemire, they all saw this as an opportunity to retire with their their money. They all made us a, a buttload of money. Um, and so basically after six months, Bromley and Stewart left, you know, and they went to form another company called Sega SA in Spain, which specializes in importing coin-op machines to Europe. It gets really confusing, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it's getting tough to follow all of this. There's a lot of a lot of different pieces getting all moved around. I mean, basically, the the Japanese guys became became Sega Enterprises at this time. Sega Enterprises became public in the in the United States in '74, um, but they established Sega of America in 1975 
to enter the North American market. They opened up, uh, Sega opened up a prominent arcade center in basically Japan by the end of 1970. It was a 70 game arcade and family fun center, basically. Um, and yeah, and that was, that was one of the, you know, that, that was a thing. 1973, they released Pong Trod, which was their first video-based game. Um, yeah. And they had a whole lot of stuff. Did you know that they even made uh, PJ... You ever heard of PJ Pizzazz? No, Dave. I have it, not heard of PJ Pizzazz. It was a family entertainment center concept that was designed to compete with Chuck E. Cheese, which basically they opened in like California in the 70s. Nope, never heard of it once before. Not at all? Not even a little bit, no. And then, you know, as arcades arcades became a thing, they, you know, that late 1970s arcade boom, they basically made games like Zaxxon, they helped import games, they established themselves as one of the top five arcade game manufacturers in the United States, basically. They weathered through the arcade area, but as we all know, in the early 80s, 1983, the video game industry basically, you know, crashed. And that started in, what, 82? 82 is about when the arcade industry faced a very significant downturn. A very significant downturn. So they were looking for ways to make money, right? Now we know what other companies did this time. Nintendo made the Famicom. So of course Sega is seeing what other companies are going to do and they're interested in making their own making their own home console too, right? Right. So their first idea is a computer with a built-in keyboard known as the SC3000. So they start developing this, but they hear about Nintendo's plans to release a console, the Famicom, and so they start developing alongside the SC-3000, uh, 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 something called the SG-1000. The SG-1000 is referred to as the Mark I. Uh, the SG stood for Sega Game. And basically, you know, they wanted to make a console that was, you know, using popular off-the-shelf components that would make it cheap. And they did. Coincidentally, it launched on the exact same day as Nintendo's Famicom in Japan. Did you know that? I had no idea, Dave. I, I honestly didn't even know this existed until we started talking about it last week. July 15th, 1983. The SG-1000 was released in Japan at a price of 15,000 yen. Uh, it was released simultaneously with the SC-3000. So how did it do? It did okay. It was sold 160,000 units in 1983. They really only thought that they were going to sell 50,000 units. And it launched Sega as a major competitor uh, against the against the Nintendo Famicom, right? They followed it up with the SG-1002. I don't know why you don't call it like the SG-2000. Well, because it was a simpler time. <laughs> Basically, the SG-1000 ended up selling over 1.4 million units in Japan over the entire series, which there ended up being three of them, the uh, SG-1002 and then the Mark III, 
which is we know as the master system. You ever heard of the Sega master system? Nope. Still not ringing any bells to me, Dave. Master system is what I'm familiar with. That's that's the one I know that that preceded the Sega Genesis. So did that break into the American market? It, it absolutely did. Um, it was the like I said, the third it was a remodeled version of. So the Sega Mark three was Japan and then they brought it over here as the master system. It came to North America in 1986. It came to Europe in 1987. They relaunched it back in Japan as the master system in 87 too, which with some with some upgrades. But basically, that's the one that mostly competed with the NES. They basically, you know, rebranded. They, they knew that the Mark III wasn't going to be a thing, so they brought it over as the Master System. It sold, it launched in September of 1986 with a price of $200. It included uh, two games called Hang On, which was an arcade racing game, like a motorcycle one, uh-huh. and a trap and trap shooting game called Safari Hunt. All in all... The SG-1000 had, over its entire life, Japanese and North American, it had 74 games, and then it had 29 programs. 29 programs, which it had this like expansion cartridge that you could connect into it that would let you do, you know, educational or programming languages, because remember... They were developing a 3000, which was the keyboard. So they kind of released all the software concurrently with the two of them, you know? Gotcha. But I mean, there's a there's a reason why you don't know it. Well, why is that, Dave? There's a reason why you don't know it, because let's be honest, Nintendo spanked it, just completely beat the crap out of them. I mean, yeah, but at the same time, like I know of the Dreamcast and was the Dreamcast really that competitive to the Nintendo of that day and age? I don't actually know the generations well enough to know if that lines up with the NES or Super. I'm assuming, assuming Super. Or no, that'd be PlayStation, so... Yeah, Dreamcast is PlayStation. 64 would have been Nintendo's? 64 would have competed with the PlayStation. And the Dreamcast, and, then. Yeah, yeah, essentially, timing-wise. Yeah. So, I mean... Would you have argued that Sega was as popular as the PlayStation or the 64 at the time? Sega was incredibly popular through the SNES era, and then they everyone lost when the PlayStation came around. Gotcha. I, I mean, every I mean everybody lost when the PlayStation PlayStation beat the crap out of everyone, and the Dreamcast was an attempt to like compete in that era, and it just it didn't. Because you got to understand, Dreamcast would have been 1999. And then PlayStation, original PlayStation was 95. So your original PlayStation was out. Their Dreamcast was their way of trying to compete with it. And then the PlayStation 2 was 2001. PlayStation 2 ended any hope anybody had of competing whatsoever. At least till the Xbox. They compete, but, you know, probably still get beat. They do compete. So it, it just, it wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing because Nintendo beat it. Not, you know, they spent. It's funny because the history of Sega. They these three companies spent all this time. They spent all this time building up this Japanese coin-op industry, only to merge together in the end. All all those companies we talked about, they all merged together to become Sega, and then they were second place for generation after generation after generation. Until they just were taken out. And now they're, what, a video game manufacturer? That's all they are nowadays? Are they still? 
Yeah, they're a uh, they're they they are a game publish like developer publisher. Oh, okay, not producing consoles, but producing content for consoles. Yes, that okay. yeah, they don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm following. The Dreamcast wasn't the one that the the Dreamcast wasn't wasn't um the one. There was a system in between the two called the Saturn. Basically, I don't know if you know the Sega Saturn, nope, but that's Sega, not familiar to me either. The Sega Saturn was technically the successor to was technically the successor to um, to the Genesis. It would have been Saturn and then it would have been Dreamcast, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. And then they became a third party software developer. Hmm. Well, neat. Good to know they're still in business because honestly, I wasn't aware. I haven't they're, really noticed them their name on anything recent. Yeah, they're definitely still in it, but you know their history goes all the way back to. This is what fascinates me the most. I know this was a jumble and it was convoluted and everything, and you're probably going to struggle to find to follow it. But all the way back in 1899, this Jewish guy from Brooklyn starts a coin op company for early mechanical machines. His son decides, hey, we're going to go sell a military bases. They use that to springboard into the Japanese market. They hook up with a bunch of they hook up with like every other company that's going to make games in the Japanese market. They all merge together and they become Sega, which becomes one of the top video game console manufacturers in the world for a short period of time. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's definitely a convoluted story and not uh well, it seems to be kind of the norm amongst video game manufacturers, if we really think about it. They all do some pretty crazy stuff to become manufacturers of games and consoles and the things that we love to enjoy. Very, very true. Very, very true. But the SG-1000 wasn't anything special. It had its joy pads connected to a TV, had cartridges. I mean, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. Uh, it, it's not that I'm underselling it. It was literally just another console that didn't do anything special. It competed. It competed in a market. People bought one or the other. It really wasn't until the next next generation with the Sega Genesis that Sega established itself as anything different or unique from Nintendo. The SG-1000 was just another system in this in this era. That That's it. It was just another system in this era. And they tried to make three versions of it, making little tweaks here and there, you know, the latter, which is the mega system. And then it just, you know, it just disappeared and they replaced it with the Sega Genesis, which we all know and love. Quite the story, Dave. It is quite the story. And we talked about Nintendo's first system recently. Uh, How did it talk about? We talked about Nintendo's first game system recently, which was the TV game color, right? Right. The TV game color was Nintendo's. If you want to learn more about that, you can learn about these early games in, in these these first few generations. All these episodes are available on our website at www.memorycardlane.com. Rob, what can people also find at memorycardlane.com? Well, Dave, a calendar of our upcoming episodes and yeah. topics can be found on there where you can maybe put some comments in there and tell us your experience with the games or some little fun insight you might have into a developer or a product or one of those things you can also find links to things such as our patreon our discord where you can come hang out with us shoot the shit talk some games talk some history with dave 
and you know just just be cool friends and you can also find links to our social media i can be found on several platforms as rob underscore o underscore raptor and dave i'm on various platforms as david is wrong and speaking of our patreon Every week, if you're a Patreon member, we'll be posting an unedited version of the episode, but also an ad-free version of the episode. You have your choice. So if you'd like to listen to our episodes ad-free, go to our website and click on the link to visit our Patreon and give $1 or $2 a month to support us and listen to our episodes without those ads in the middle. Or like early beginning. Early beginning. Each week, we tell you the story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. This week we learn all about the really topsy-turvy, convoluted, confusing history of the Sega Enterprises Limited, Sega, and on their creation to the SG-1000, which was, eh, you know, their first console. That's what it's known for. While teaching you about these topics, we hope to teach you something new about it, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. One of the best parts about doing these episodes is we always learn things as we do the research for them because we don't know everything. So we learn and then we get to take what we learn and we teach you. And and as we teach, we learn. That's the beauty of teaching. When you teach, you learn, you learn, you teach, so on and so forth. So in recognition of this beautiful cycle of teaching and learning, we like to talk about our biggest takeaways each week. So Rob, what did you learn today? Well, Dave, I had to say that my biggest takeaway is that Sega started by selling slots for soldiers. Uh, it's not exactly how it started, but the fact that it got rolling with selling to the military and these coin-op machines. I mean, it, I don't often think about how video game manufacturers came to be in their origins. And just it's it's always interesting to find that what all of these companies were doing beforehand and never would I have guessed that it was, you know, selling different coin operated machines to different military bases and then getting kicked out by all of the militaries because of all (laughs) that crazy stuff. And then opening up a new market and then starting a worldwide thing, you know, it's just, it it shows a, the the hustle and drive. Some of these folks have to not want to give up on their dreams, but it also shows you that, uh, there, there can be a lot of roadblocks in the way and it's just it's you never know what you're going to have to try to overcome when you're trying to get something like that off the ground. So it's pretty cool. That they managed to do it. And although they don't make consoles anymore, uh, it's actually really cool to also hear that they're still around. I I didn't know that either. I thought that they were done. So um, just surprising me all around today with Sega. So that's it for me. What about yourself? I always thought Sega was a straight up Japanese company. But the truth of the matter is, is that it was founded by American businessmen, technically. I had no clue that it had roots in the American coin-op industry. And I found that really fascinating. So, I mean, it technically is a Japanese company, but, you know, its roots weren't Japanese. Its roots were American. And I'm not saying that as a snobby American. I just, you can trace its history back to this, you know, Jewish coin up guy from the 19 1899 and i just think that's the coolest thing ever and i had absolutely no idea that the coin up industry in brooklyn led to the creation of sega also didn't know it was service games no clue i had no clue yeah, about that that's definitely a shock to me as well i never would have guessed that that's what it stood for i thought it was just another one of those crazy made-up things awesome well on that note i think we're ready to take it out of here rob before we do what would you like to add to today's episode 
Well, Dave, as always, I do want to take one quick moment to say thank you so much to everyone for listening. We hope that you enjoy the few short minutes of enjoyment and the rest of the long time of just listening to Boring Facts with Rob and Dave. Yeah, this one was a lot of facts. This one was a lot of facts all over the place. All right. Next week, we're going to be learning about The Strong, which was a, which is an interactive collections-based educational institution in Rochester, New York, devoted to the study and exploration of play. There are various collections in this museum, including the National Museum of Play, the National Toy Hall of Fame, the International Center for the History of Electronic Games, the Brian Sutton Smith Library and Archives of Play, the American Journal of Play, and most importantly to us, the World Video Game Hall of Fame. So next week, we're going to learn about the strong. We're going to learn about how it was created, who created it, and what exactly is in it in more detail. So join us again next week as we become your museum tour guides on yet another trip down memory card lane to the thing. Doom, dum, 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 doo, 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 doo.